sermon series called I Want to Believe But. And we've been taking on seven questions that people oftentimes have, whether in the church or outside the church. We've looked at some, some different topics already. We've looked at, for example, I want to believe, but how do I know God exists? Or I want to believe, but how, what reasons do I have to, to trust the Bible that is trustworthy? We looked at last week at the problem of evil. Like I want to believe, but, but suffering comes my way. And where is God in the midst of all the suffering? Today we're taking on a different kind of question. Next Sunday we're taking a question, just to give you a little heads up of what's coming. We're taking on the question of I want to believe, but what about when God doesn't answer my prayers? What then? So today, like I mentioned, it's a different kind of question. Some of you this morning, you're going to love this question. You're going to lean in. You're going to, uh, you're just, you're, you're passionate about it or you're asking these, the question that we're going to talk about. For others of you, maybe not as much. And it's, it's maybe going to feel like a different kind of a Sunday, a different kind of a message. Today we're taking on the question of I want to believe, but doesn't science disprove God? We're talking about the relationship between faith and science. Because I think, you know, we have the question sometimes of, is it possible and okay to love Jesus and love science at the same time? Or, or are they completely incompatible with each other and they're just arch enemies with each other? And, and, and to, to believe in one means you can't uh, hold to the other. Is that really the case? And our culture would lead us to believe that's the case. If you look at culture, you look at media, you look at a lot of university science uh, classrooms and departments, you'd get this idea that they are completely opposed that they have nothing in common, and, and again, to hold to one means you can't hold to the other. And yet, is that true? Richard Dawkins, a famous atheist scientist today, he had this quote, among many others. He said this, he says, science flies you to the moon, but religion flies you into buildings. And with this kind of rhetoric, it does create walls. It creates division between the two. Is it possible to love Jesus and also appreciate and participate in science. You know, it wasn't always this way. It wasn't always this idea of a division. In fact, science here in Western culture as we know it, it grew out of a Christian milieu. It grew out of a Christian worldview. In fact, science wouldn't be what it is today without Christianity. And yet, that's not in store today. Today, there's a new twist, a new turn. It's, it's a word called scientism. And scientism is this view that says, and here's a slide for it. It says that science is the only source of knowledge about reality. That science owns this department. And so if you want to know things, you can only know things that you can verify scientifically or empirically, meaning you can taste it, uh, taste it, touch it, smell it, hear it, those kinds of things. If you can do it and verify it that way, then you can know it. Well, why is that so important? Because well, what does that have to do with faith for us? Because you can't put God in a test tube and taste and hear and smell and do all those kinds of things. It doesn't verify empirically. So what does it have to do with us? Well, what that means is that you and I, as followers of Jesus, we can hope our faith is true. We can have the opinion that it's true. We can even believe that it's true. But we can't say that we know it. We can't say that we know that it's true. And yet we look at the scriptures, and the scriptures say more than 2,000 times, that's a lot of times, more than 2,000 times that you can know God. And that what you believe, you can know. That there are reasons to believe that your faith is true. And I'll stand up in front of, a, as a professor, a classroom of people, and, and I've, I've told students before this, I've said, I know that God exists. And the looks that I get back, they'll say, well, I'm glad you believe he exists. I said, that's not what I said. I didn't say I believe he exists. I know he exists. With absolute certainty. And I have reasons to support that view. You think you are from Mars. Because the, the milieu today, the way people think today is only science owns knowledge. 
but not other places such as Christianity. And so you have high school students that don't have that foundation in place. Maybe they believe it. Maybe they've been raised in it and they go to, to go away to university and maybe you're involved in a science class or something like that. And first semester, their faith is shipwrecked because they don't have that foundation of, no, no, I know it. And here's why I know it. And I can explain to you why I know it. This morning, we're going to take on this question. And I'd like you, if you would, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. This is where we're going to spend our time this morning. And what I want to do is I want to just interact with this question and I want to lay... I, I, Here's what I want to do. I want you to see this morning that science and Christianity, your faith, are not enemies. And in fact, science in many ways reinforces your faith. That may surprise you, but it does. It absolutely reinforces your faith. So Ecclesiastes, that's where we're going to be this morning. But as you're turning there, I want to give a little background, a little bit of um, a foundation for us, if you will, kind of a uh, look at the forest from the trees perspective of this topic so that we can see with the passage we look at where it fits in. And hopefully that will help you this morning. If you have your bulletin, I hope you do, some fill-in-the-blanks here. Here's your first fill-in-the-blank this morning. It's this, that 95% of science is irrelevant to Christianity. Irrelevant. It doesn't matter if you're a Christian or not, 95% of science is just kind of what it is. Like, for example, it doesn't matter if water is H2O or H3O in terms of being a believer or not. It, it, believers and unbelievers, they design bridges the same way. They, they, the laws of nature are such that you study them, you approach them, you appreciate them in much the same way, regardless of faith. And so why I think this is important to call out is because this idea that people in science departments sit around all day and think of ways to get mad and even with Christianity and then Christians sit around and think about, that's not true. 95, again, most science is irrelevant to Christianity. It has nothing to do with it. Let's keep going. Next stat. 3 to 4% of science is actually favorable to Christianity. It, it actually reinforces what the Bible says. It's scientific discoveries that when you look at these discoveries, it actually reinforces and it supports faith in the Bible, faith in God, and Christianity. And this is an exciting thing. Now, I want to give you three examples. They're already up there for you, the bullet points there, and you can, uh, you can use this. First one is the second law of thermodynamics. Never thought you'd learn about that in church, right? But here, here we go. I'm going I'm to boil it down, and you can now go to a party or something like that and drop a little second law of thermodynamics conversation on them, and they'll be so impressed with you, right? Because you know what this means. The second law of thermodynamics, this is so important here, and it's a scientific law. This is not a theory. This is a law that will reinforce your faith here. And what this law points to is that the universe had a beginning. That's what science says today. The universe had a beginning. And this is important. In fact, in fact, Einstein called the second law of thermodynamics irritating because he knew exactly what it meant. Here's what the law says. The law says that the universe is running out of useful energy. It's a law of entropy. It's running out of useful energy. So if you, you compare it to uh, your car and, and you go to the gas station, you fill it up, it's on full, you start to drive it, the needle obviously goes down eventually to empty. The universe is doing essentially the same thing as by way of illustration. Someday the lights will go out. Someday all this will be over. Just, just in terms of scientific laws and the way the nature is, someday this is going to happen. Now, not tomorrow. Don't, don't worry about that. But it's going to be a long, long time from now. But that's what the law says. Now, the reason this is so important is because if the universe is running out of energy, that means there had to be a point where the gas tank was full, if you will, and now we're de 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 depreciating in energy. It can't be that the universe is eternal. It can't be that the universe has always existed. But that's what some in science want it to be. 
Why? Because it removes God. It removes a creator. And yet when we look at the second law, it reinforces that there was a point in time where there was a beginning. There was a creator. Second law reinforces that. How about the Cambrian explosion? Cambrian explosion, about 500 years ago. Let's maybe go back to high school biology. I don't know. But 500 years ago or so, you see in the fossil records, out of nowhere, an explosion of 75% of animal life. Fully formed, completely complex. Now this goes against completely Darwinian macroevolution. This idea that, that over time in an unguided random process that we somehow had a, a change in, in, and we'll talk more about this later on this morning, but a change in kind between species. That you, you had different species adapting to other species and yet we don't have transitory fossil records. What we have is an explosion. We have a certain amount of animal life and then all of a sudden, boom, there's everything within about a, a very short period of time. The Cambrian explosion is very inconvenient for those who don't hold to the existence of God, but it reinforces what the Bible teaches in the book of Genesis. Here's one more example. Cosmic fine-tuning. The idea behind this is that many scientists look in the natural world and they see all kinds of different, we'll call them constants, we see all kinds of different ways that the universe had to be precisely tuned, think of like a radio tuner, precisely tuned in order for life to happen. In order for you to be here and for me to be here, for life to happen, it had to be precisely and finely tuned, not just in one way, but in hundreds and hundreds of different ways, finely tuned. Like, like as an example here, if the earth were slightly closer to the sun, the oceans would vaporize. Slightly further away, the oceans would freeze. Slightly more oxygen in the earth's atmosphere and we would all catch fire. Slightly less, we would suffocate. Uh, if our distance from the sun, the axis tilt, and again, over a hundred other different constants weren't exactly fine-tuned precisely for life, none of this would happen. It's almost like a designer dialed up every constant in the natural world in order for life, you and I, to be here. And scientists know this too. For example, Paul Davies, he's an atheist uh, scientist, he said this, the impression of design is overwhelming. I'm sure he said it through gritted teeth. Stephen Hawking, who is an agnostic, he said our universe and its laws appear to have been designed that is tailor-made to support us. And there's other examples. See, science is not the enemy. Science is not... Uh, what, what's against Christianity. And I want to just, before I move on to this point, I want to mention a resource uh, for, for all of us. If this topic interests you, and if you have kids especially, it's called Indescribable by Louis Giglio. And it's 100 devotions about God and science. And if you're wondering, well, what are some of those other ways? You mentioned over 100 different ways, you know, where, where God and science come together and it works beautifully. This devotion does a fantastic job of laying it out. Us adults will appreciate it because we can kind of get it. You know, it's written at a younger age. Kids love it. It's even got pictures for the rest of us. So I would just encourage you, if this is a topic you like, check out that book uh, and you can look at that, uh, you know, on, on your own. So there we are so far. You've got two fill-in-the-blanks done. And what we've seen so far, just looking at the forest from the trees, we see that 98 to 99% of science is either irrelevant to Christianity or actually supports it, actually reinforces your faith in the Bible. And I hope that that encourages you this morning. I, I hope that at least just so far you say, well, I mean, that's good. That's fantastic. Because maybe you've always had this thought or sometimes it nags on you like, well, what do scientists know that I don't know? What do people who have the PhD after their name, what do they know that I don't know? 
what have they discovered that maybe the, you know, shows that the Bible actually isn't true? Is, am I up on everything? And there can feel like a little insecurity with that. I'm here to tell you that's not true. Again, 98 to 90% of, of science, Christianity, it's irrelevant or it's favorable to your faith. But that does leave a remaining percent. Next fill in the blank. 1% to 2% of science is problematic to Christianity. I think this is important to talk about. Just 1% to 2%. But it's this 1% to 2% that gets all the headlines. It's this 1% to 2% that keeps uh, uh, professors in, in universities who are believers from being tenured or published. And they are marginalized for their faith and mocked. It's this 1% to 2% that becomes the whole thing for people and say, hey, see, this is the reason why science and faith don't get along. It's only 1% to 2%. And really, actually, we could, bear it, we could, we could narrow it down more to three topics. That's it. Three areas where there's controversy between science and faith. All I'm going to do now is I'm going to introduce these areas to you. They're your next fill in the blanks. And on and, uh, and another occasion or in small groups during the week, you guys will be unpacking this and talking these different areas out. But here are the three areas. Area number one, the age of the earth. The age of the earth. Here is an area where science and Christians sometimes don't agree. And there is some controversy. You see, science typically holds to the date of about 13.7 billion years old. That's how old the universe is. Through carbon dating and other mechanisms, they look at the universe and say it's about 13.7 billion years, give or take. Now, for some Christians, that's not a problem. They're called old earth creationists. And they look at Genesis and they believe in the creator and they believe in Genesis and they hold to how it lays out. But they say the way that God did Genesis chapters 1 and 2 was over a longer period of time. And so it fits well within science's claim of 13.7 billion years. But there's other Christians that are called young earth creationists. They would hold to the position of no, the earth is actually very young, about seven to 10,000 years old. Well, now you can see where the controversy is. 13.7 versus 7 to 10. That's a big discrepancy in years. So which one is it? And that becomes the point of conversation. How old is the universe? I want to point you to some resources there. They're on the screen if you want to learn more. Answers in Genesis, there's their website. They are a great ministry that focuses on young earth creationism. And so if that's a perspective you want to learn more about, you can go there and, and there's tons of articles and resources and blogs and all that kind of thing for you to check out. If old earth creationist, uh, if that position is interesting to you, you want to learn more about it, you can go to reasons to believe or reasons.org. And then Institute for Creation Research, they also have, it's a great research, uh, resource, lots of articles that you can dive in a little deeper and form some convictions of your own about the age of the universe. So that's one area of controversy. We're not going to fix it today or solve it, but that's one area. Here's number two, the next area. Evidence for Noah's flood. Did it happen? Was it local? Was it global? Some geologists look at the world and say, yeah, I, I think there's evidence in the sedimentary, you know, the rock layers and all this kind of thing that we can see evidence for Noah's flood and others say, no, I don't see it. Either way, it's a point of conversation. It's a point of tension sometimes between science and Christianity. Here's one more area, the big one. Here's the big one. Darwinian macroevolution. This is the big area. This is the area that, again, it gets more play than any of the other two. And notice, as you're, I'm asking you to fill in the blank. I'm asking you to fill in the word macro. And you might be like, macro, what are we talking about here? See, sometimes when it comes to evolution, we say, you know, evolution isn't true, or somebody says, I think it is true. You have to be real careful on this point, because there's two types of evolution. One type is called microevolution, 
And microevolution is an adaptation within a species. So, for example, during the Middle Ages, the height, average height of a man was five foot seven. In fact, that actually would be a tall man in the Middle Ages was five foot seven. Okay, so, so differences in height, we're taller now. Uh, or Darwin's finches, maybe you studied that in high school, remember that, and we had the different, the beaks of the finch would adapt based on food and seasons of the year and things like that. That's all microevolution. Species do undergo slight adaptations based on climate and food and, and all those kind of factors. That's not problematic. What's the issue is macroevolution. Macroevolution is Darwin's view that the world is where it's at today through an unguided, random, chaotic evolutionary process where species adjusted from one kind into another and then into another. In fact, you'll see on the slide on your right-hand side, well, go back if you would. On your right-hand side, that's Darwin's actual notebook where he was sketching the tree of life. And he was beginning to play with the idea of, of how we go from a tadpole to a frog to a lizard to a, an alligator to a dinosaur to a monkey to a whatever, to eventually to us. And so you have these change in kind between species. And you'll see there on your left is a more sophisticated adaptation of what the tree of life could have looked like. This becomes an area that's problematic. This becomes an area that goes against what the scriptures teach and what we see in Genesis. This becomes an area of controversy here. I like this quote. You can go ahead and hit the next slide, if you would, please, from Ron Carlson. He said this, In grammar school, they taught me that a frog turning into a prince was a fairy tale. In the university, they taught me that a frog turning into a prince was a fact. It's controversy. It's conversation. Did it happen this way? Did it not? This becomes, this becomes the area of fighting. But here's what I want you to hear this morning, and hopefully you've already picked up on it, is that faith and science are not enemies. Again, 98 to 99% of science and faith are completely compatible. There's no issues. There are these three issues. Again, they get all the headlines. But they're points of conversation. They're points of discovery and to learn more and to see, to see what the truth really is. The, the issue is not science and Christianity. Here's the issue. The area of controversy is between naturalism and Christianity. Because a lot of scientists are pressured into or choose on their own, of course, to become what's called a naturalist. There's a definition for you. Naturalism is the view that the physical world is all that exists. And this is a view that in our culture is growing exponentially. And again, it's the media, it's the university, it's pop culture that's driving this narrative. Naturalism, that the physical world is all that exists. This is the issue. See, naturalism and Christianity, that's a point of they don't get along. That's a point of they're going in two different directions. It's, it's one worldview that says there is no God. It's another worldview that says there is a God. You can see their polar opposites going in different directions. It's not science and Christianity. It's naturalism and Christianity. And it's naturalism as a worldview that we as a church need to be aware of because it's growing in our culture. It's growing in our community. It's in our schools. It's everywhere. It's, 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 it's so, so prevalent today. And it was also prevalent in biblical times. I asked you to go to Ecclesiastes earlier. We're going to pick up there now in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 starting in verse 1 because I want you to see naturalism as a worldview in Scripture 2000, well, a little less than 2,000 years ago. 
Now, in this book, Ecclesiastes, it's an interesting book. If you haven't read it before, I'd encourage you to do so. But I'm going to kind of lay it out for you and what it is. Ecclesiastes is a book for Solomon, who is the king. This is King David's son, Solomon. And Ecclesiastes is going through a period of, of time in his life where he's struggling with doubts. And he's struggling with sin, to be frank. He has gone wayward. He was a person who believed in God. He was a person who walked with God. He's, you know, he wrote Proverbs. He wrote Lamentations. He, he was, he's, he's a man in that place. And then for a number of reasons, he, got, he went wayward. He got distracted. And all of a sudden, he finds himself in a place where he neither is walking with God and he's doubting God's existence. And so what he does in this place in his life is he lets us in on an experiment that he's going to go through where he's going to look at the world and he's going to make an important assumption. He's going to assume that God doesn't exist. He's going to take God and completely remove him, put him on the shelf, set him aside, look at what's left. Now what's left when we take God out of the equation? Well, all that's left is the natural world, the physical world. He's going to adopt the position of a naturalist and he's going to say, I want to see if I can find purpose and meaning in this world without God. That was what he tried to do. Let's see how it goes. Join me in chapter 1, verse 1, as he lays out his experiment here. It says this. It says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. So he's just introducing himself. This is Solomon. He says, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, what he's really doing here is he's giving you sort of his conclusion. He's saying, look, I've set God aside. I'm going to approach life without God. And here's what I find meaningless. And in fact, 37 times, he says it over and over and over again, 37 times meaningless. Meaning he can't find meaning in this world apart from God. Let's see how the experiment continues to unfold here. Look with me at verse 3. He says, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come... And generations go, but the earth remains forever. In other words, people's lives, I mean, they're born, they die, they're born, they die, they're born, they die. I mean, our lives will be over too, but the natural world just keeps going. It just keeps going. It, it never stops, if you will. He says, the sun rises and the sun sets, and it hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, and it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. And all uh, streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. What's he doing here? He, he's looking at all that he has left to look at. He's looking at the natural world. And he looks at, at things like the sun, the earth, the wind streams, the ocean. And he's just pointing out that the natural world just goes on a course. It just does what it does. It rains here, the oceans fill there, the you know, evaporation that drops rain over there. It just, it just does its natural course of things. That's all that it does. Let's keep going, verse 8. He says, all things are wearisome, and more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its uh, fill of hearing. And what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. I don't know about you, but that's a very depressing start to his experiment. Meaningless. The natural world doing what it does, but there's nothing new under the sun. It just does what it does, and after you and I are gone, it'll keep doing what it does. That's what the natural world does. Without God, 
you can't find meaning in just the physical world. But scientists know this today. Look with me at this quote here by Stephen Jay Gould, who is an atheist scientist. He said this. He says, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures. Because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age. Because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but here it is. But none exists. Again, a depressing place to be. But here he is looking at square in the eye and say, I recognize that in the physical world, there is no higher answer. There is no higher purpose. There's no reason for life. There's no purpose for you and I and, and for this person too in terms of how they live their life. And so Solomon, he's got this experiment that he's letting us in on. He's, he's taking us along on this journey, but he doesn't give up. He realizes, I don't find meaning in the physical world as a naturalist, so let me look elsewhere. And so I'm going to just give you some foreshadowing. If you read the book on your own, he goes all kinds of other places, and he tries to find meaning in these other places. For example, he turns to education to find purpose. He turns to pleasure. He turns to money. He turns to sex. He turns to work, success. He turns to stuff. And he's the king. He's got everything at his disposal. He can do anything he wants. He tries all these different areas to try to fill the void that was empty once he took God out of there and set him on a shelf. And all these things that he filled inside of him, it never filled him up. It never satisfied him. It never brought meaning or purpose to his life. And then he gives us the conclusion to the matter in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 13. Here's, here's the end of his experiment. Here's the big reveal, if you will. He says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion to the matter. Conclusion of this grand experiment that he did, presumably over several years. He said, here it is. That you and I would fear God. In other words, you'd worship him. And that you would keep his commandments. In other words, you would obey him. For this is the whole duty of man and woman. That we would do this, that we would worship God and we would obey God. That's our lot in life. That's our privilege. That's our joy. That's where we find meaning and purpose is in God. And so what does God do? Or excuse me, Solomon do? He, he inserts God back into the picture of his life to find meaning. He realizes the natural world or living as a naturalist will never do it. Uh, a famous philosopher named Bertrand Russell, he came to the same conclusion. He said this. He said, unless you assume a God... The question of life's purpose is meaningless. He could have learned that just by reading Ecclesiastes. This is our story too. And here's why I want to share about Ecclesiastes. Here's why I want to take us to this point and highlight naturalism versus faith. It's because Solomon's experiment in the book of Ecclesiastes, that's our culture today. That's us today. That right here in our community, there are hundreds, maybe thousands, thousands, I don't know, of people. Neighbors and friends and co-workers spreading out from Adel all over Waukee and West Des Moines and beyond. That are living a life just like Solomon tried to live. They're looking for purpose. They're looking for meaning. They're looking for something that only God can satisfy and fill. And they're doing it just like Solomon did. They're doing it in work. And they're doing it with success. And they're doing it with stuff. And they're doing it with sex. And they're doing it with anything else that they could find to try to gratify them and fill the gap that is there. See, this is America. 
this is, this is our country. This is us. This is not from the dusty pages just of some Solomon's journal back in the day. These are people today, people that you know, people that you love, people that you're praying for, that are searching, that are lost. They want purpose in life. They want to know what's out there. They want to know what reason they have to wake up in the morning and then what they do during the day has some value that's going to go beyond just them and their last breath. Many of you have been there before. Maybe you're there today. See, this becomes church, again, our opportunity. This becomes our opportunity to step into people's life with gentleness and respect and to give a reason for the hope that we have. To point people back to a God where they'll find that ultimate fulfillment. To even share, you know what, your life sounds like a life of somebody else that I've gotten to know over the years. Now, yeah, he's dead, he's not around. His name is Solomon, he was a king, and can I tell you about his story? Because maybe it'll resonate with yours. And this is what he found. And there was nothing he could say no to. He had all the money and opportunity in the world. But it never satisfied. See, the issue, to bring it back full circle, and the banjos, come on up if you would, please. The issue today, it's not about science. It's about naturalism. If there's anything I want you to take away this morning, I think that's it. I think I want for all of us to have this idea that Christianity and science are not enemies. And that you can love Jesus with all your heart and you can appreciate the natural world. You can study science. You can get a science degree. You get a science occupation. We need more Christians in science, in fact, I would say. But you can appreciate the beauty of the natural world from flowers to trees to stars and to say, God, look what you did. This is absolutely incredible and I'm going to worship you. And I don't worship the creation. I worship the creator who made it. This is our opportunity. We can do that, but we need to be aware of naturalism as a worldview. Not because they're the enemy, but because we have compassion to reach people and to recognize where they're at. People that are looking for meaning and they're looking for purpose. What I want to do now is let's take a moment. I want us to pray. And if, if you have pins and bulletins and all that in your lab, you just set those aside just for a moment. And, and we're going to pray together, but I want to carve out just a minute for just you and God, because maybe this morning as we were talking about this, maybe somebody came to mind. Maybe there's a person that you love and care about, and, and this is their area of struggle. Or maybe they, they don't even know the word naturalism, the word's not even important, but they've adopted this lifestyle of assuming that God doesn't exist. I just want to take a moment just for you, just you and God. Pray for them. Pray for them by name. Let's go ahead and do that now. Let's pray together. And would you pray for our community now, for people in this place this morning that we've been talking about? Would you pray for Love Adele Day as we interact with people this Saturday? as we love people this Saturday and point people to you, people that are, are naturalists, that hold this perspective, would you pray for them right now? Would you pray for our nation? Because we're a nation that is increasingly removing God from the picture. We're trying to find value and meaning elsewhere. And Father, this morning we pray that as your church, 
We pray for the same for all the churches in our community, that you would help us to lovingly and appropriately and with conviction communicate by our actions and by our words that we know that you exist, that science doesn't have the claim to knowledge. We know you exist, that you're on the throne, that you are doing a great work. And Father, we pray for those that we know and love that have, for one reason or another, have removed God from their worldview, from their picture of their life. I pray that you'd win their heart. We pray that you'd get their attention. We pray that they would come to a place where they recognize that you are, that you exist, and that you love. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said.